as we start in, in the Advent season, uh, we are going to be spending the next few weeks talking about hope and joy and peace and love. And we celebrate the incarnation and the birth of Jesus Christ. And, you know, when you come to the idea of hope, it's really funny because when you look at the way that our culture and the way that the world views hope, and then you look at the biblical use of hope, they're two very different things. You know, I might say something like, man, I really hope that there's no snow on Douglas Pass this weekend. Or I might say, man, I really hope that as my wife and kids are traveling around, they get there safely. Or maybe you go and you get a lottery ticket and you say, man, I really hope that I win big. And that's kind of how we tend to use the word hope. It's this idea that, that it's something that we want, but we really don't have any certainty that it's going to be there, or we don't have any certainty that it's going to be true. And that's how we use the term hope. Biblical hope is something so different. Because when we say that we have hope as found in the scripture, and that we have hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it's not something that we are looking at with this idea of eh, maybe it'll be okay and maybe it won't. It's not this idea of, you know, maybe it'll happen and maybe it won't. But when we say that we hope in Christ and hope in the resurrection, we have a hope because it is absolutely certain that what God has declared will come to be. Nothing thwarts his plans. Nothing stops him from accomplishing all of his purposes. He is the Lord Almighty. He's the author of all things. He's the author of our salvation. He's the creator of heaven and earth. And when God says that something will be, it's as good as done. And we see examples of this all throughout the Bible. You know, one of the characters in the Old Testament that's described as having great hope in the word of God is Abraham. And so you go back to the book of Abraham, and it's amazing to me all that Abraham did and believed and accomplished when he really didn't have all that much to go on. I mean, we're very privileged. We have the indwelling spirit of the living God. We have the entire canon of scripture, the complete revelation that God has given us that we can lean on. We have thousands of years of history to look back on at the faithfulness of God. Abraham didn't have those things. He had no scripture. There wasn't really revelation given to him at the time. He was just a pagan man living in a pagan family in a pagan country. And then God called him out and said, Abraham, you're going to leave. You're going to go. And he followed him. And then when he got to where God showed him where he was going to go, God made this audacious promise to him. He said, you, Abraham, are going to have a son. Now, at the time when that was promised, Abraham was already getting up there in years. In fact, he was 100 when his son was born. But the amazing thing is, is that God changed his name before he delivered that promise. He looked at Abraham, Abram and he said, Abram, I'm going to give you a son and your name's no longer going to be Abram. It's going to be Abraham. And you know what the word Abraham means? It means father of nations. So I just want you to picture for a moment. There's Abraham, rich man, lots of herds, lots of flocks, lots of servants. He was wealthy. 
and yet he was going around calling himself Abraham, the father of nations, and he had no descendants and no children, and he was reaching on into his 80s. Can't you just picture people mocking him behind his back? Oh, there goes the father of nations. Yeah, so many children that he has. Oh, watch out. Here comes the father of nations. Better be careful. You know, all the descendants that are going to be coming out of him. And yet when he called out to God and God said to him, listen, your servant isn't going to be your heir. That's not what's going to happen. You will have a son. It says that Abraham believed and that it was counted to him as righteousness. See, Abraham had hope that he would one day receive a son. Why? Because of anything he could do? No. He was reaching up in age. His wife was getting old, well past the years where they should be able to bear children. But you know what? God said it. And so therefore, it is true. Even more so than that, you go on to Abraham's life. And after, after Isaac is born, God had promised him, you know, through Isaac, your descendants shall be named. You're going to have this baby. He's going to grow up. And your descendants are going to outnumber the stars. And it's all going to come through this child, Isaac. That's the one that's going to do it. And then God looked at Abraham and said, I want you to go and sacrifice your son. And the most phenomenal thing in the scripture is that we get the idea that Abraham doesn't hesitate. He gets up early in the morning. He takes three days to travel, knowing that he is going to go and sacrifice his son. And you sit there and think to yourself, why would Abraham do that? Why would Abraham sit there and be willing to give up the son of promise? Why would he be willing to sacrifice this boy that was a miracle of God in his life? Why would he do that? Well, we find out in the book of Hebrews that it's because he had faith in the word of God. See, the book of Hebrews reveals to us a little bit of Abraham's thinking about this whole ordeal. Because this is what Abraham was told. Abraham, through Isaac, your descendants shall be named. And then at the same time, God said, Abraham, I want you to sacrifice Isaac as a sacrifice unto me. And so knowing those two things, that through Isaac, my descendants shall be named, and yet I am called to sacrifice my son Isaac. This is what Abraham believed. He believed that God keeps his promises. That God can do all that he has said he will do. And so he believed in his heart of heart, according to the book of Hebrews, that if I go and sacrifice my son, God will still keep his promise and he will raise my son from the dead so that he can bear descendants for me. That's the hope that Abraham had. And what was his hope based on? Nothing more than the revealed word of God. See, as we live out our lives, day after day after day. We don't place our hope and faith in something that might be or might come true or might be accurate. No, because in Romans chapter 10, verse 11, it says all those who believe in Jesus will not be put to shame. Can you imagine if you gave your whole life to this idea of the Christian faith and you gave this whole idea to studying the Bible and you put all of your effort into it and you spent years and years and years trying to live a holy life only to then die and find out there's nothing on the other side? That it was all fake? That it was all just made up by some guys a couple thousand years ago and here we all got suckered into this life that we have lived? That'd be shameful, wouldn't it? 
there'd be this idea of like, wow, what a wasted life and what a wasted time. But the Bible promises us that those who place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ will not be put to shame because the thing that God has said are true. And we have such a great hope as we live out the Christian life. And we see the promise of that hope listed for us in the letter of First Peter. Now, in the letter of First Peter, Peter is writing to a group of Christians who are, are spread over a pretty wide area. It talks about in the opening of the letter that there are people in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. And all these places that these people were scattered, they were heavily Roman-occupied provinces. In fact, it was in some of these providences where there was a lot of retired military men who had taken up residence in these areas. So they were loyal to the empire. They were loyal to Rome. They were loyal to Rome's religious practices. And when they saw Christians coming into the area, well, they persecuted them heavily. There are accounts of people in these areas who literally lost their businesses because people would not buy wares from a Christian. There are people who were arrested and run out of town in certain areas. There were certain people arrested. There were certain people who were killed. This was a heavily persecuted section of the church throughout these areas. And so one of the reasons that Peter is writing to them is to encourage them in their faith. And so as we open up this letter in 1 Peter chapter 1, we see in verse 3 that the life we live, we can have amazing hope in Christ Jesus. It says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So, I mean, you just hear those words and you get the sense that, man, the life that Peter is talking about, this life that we experience as Christians, this life as we experience as those who have given our, our faith and trust to Jesus, it is not one of despair. It is not one of defeat. No, but Peter opens up this section saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So what Peter identifies here in this part of the scripture is that there is something that sets us apart from the rest of the world. I mean, you do look at the way that some people experience trial and pain and suffering in our culture today. I mean, I don't know if you've noticed or not, but in our culture today, people are very quick to complain. 
if there's any hint of injustice, if there's any hint of inequality, if there's any hint of I haven't gotten my fair share and this person has more than me and I don't have enough and they have more than they should. I mean, they complain, people riot, people go on television and talk about how horrible this whole country is because they haven't gotten their fair share or they feel persecuted in some way. That's the norm of the culture that we live in. And yet, we as Christians are to be different. And we're to be different because something has happened to us. Something has given us a different perspective. Something has changed us from the very core of who we are and made us different in this world that we live in. And Peter identifies that difference because it says that God has caused us to be born again. See, we have to understand and realize that before we knew Christ, we're just like the rest of the world. Born into sin, born into selfishness, born into spiritual death. And something took place in our lives. Something that God did, God initiated, and God proclaimed. The scripture says he caused us to be born again. And as we were born again, we weren't just born again to some kind of nebulous philosophy, but it says that we were born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. See, as we hear the gospel, as we believe the gospel, as we accept the gospel, as God does that wonderful work in our heart, resurrecting us from spiritual death, allowing us to partake in the life of Christ through his resurrection, we look at the resurrection of Christ and say, look, just as Jesus Christ has conquered sin and death, just as Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, so shall I be. This is why the, the gospel writers, and this is why the writers of the epistles talk about the idea of Christ being our elder brother. They talk about him, how he is the first fruit of the resurrection so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Because just as Christ rose from the dead, so we shall raise from the dead. And because we saw Christ raised from the dead, we can have hope that we too will rise from the dead. This life is not all there is. This life is not the only thing that we're going to get to experience. We have an entire eternity to look forward to. And the beauty of that is that it's not something we have to wonder about or something we have to guess about or something we have to think, well, maybe we'll get there and maybe we won't. Because Christ Jesus has secured it for us. And since Christ Jesus has secured it for us, we have hope. We have hope that what is coming is better than anything that we have experienced here. And Peter writes to that. In the next portion of the scripture, he says that we have been born again to a living hope, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. You know, I don't know if you've noticed or not, but everything in this world is kind of falling apart. You know, you get a brand new car and it's nice and shiny and the tires are all inflated really nice and you turn on the engine and it's just got that nice kind of sound to it. You drive that thing for a few years and suddenly it doesn't look so good and it doesn't sound so great. 
Man, I remember one time I had a car. I, when I was in high school, I drove a uh, Jeep Grand Cherokee. And it was one of those things, as I would drive around town and do stuff, it was an older car, and it was kind of falling apart. And I remember that when I would come to a stop, the entire car would shake. And, you know, we took it into a shop, and we had them look at it and fix it. And, yeah, there's some things they could do to fix it, but you know what? By the time we put that money into it, we're spending more to fix that problem than the car was worth. So I just drove a shaking car until it fell apart. That's what happens. You ever have Christmas toys, like the day after Christmas, just broken and strewn all over your house? Because some kid like ran a Batmobile just a little too hard into like a Barbie playhouse or something? Like things in this world break, they decay, they fall apart. And yet the inheritance that we are waiting for, the inheritance that's promised to us, Well, the scripture says that it is undefiled. The scripture says that it is imperishable. The scripture says it's unfading. The inheritance that we will receive in Christ Jesus will never depart. It will never diminish. It will never go away. It will never lose its value. Because the inheritance that we are going to receive from Christ, it's eternal life. The inheritance that we are going to receive from God is Christ himself. The inheritance that we are going to receive from God is citizenship in his kingdom, where we will live forever and ever and ever in resurrected bodies that will never grow old, never feel pain, never get sick, and never die. And again, this is promised to us in God's word. It's not something we have to guess about. It's a guarantee for us who are in Christ Jesus. This is the inheritance we have. And do you know why it's guaranteed? Because look what he says in the next line. He says that we're risen to this inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. So look what God has done for us. Not only has God caused us to be born again so that we have this new life that we live in the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, walking in step with the Spirit. Not only has he provided us this inheritance that is never going to go away, never going to diminish, but then at the same time, he is keeping it safe for us in his kingdom, all while guarding us and keeping us saved for the day when Christ is revealed. Do you see all that God does for his people? God provides the birth. God maintains the birth. God provides the inheritance. God maintains the inheritance. And then he guards us all the while, keeping us ready and prepared for the day when Christ is revealed. See, that's going to happen one day. Christ is going to return. And at his first advent, he came in humility The king of kings was born into a manger, into human flesh, as an infant, completely dependent upon Mary and Joseph for life. That's not going to be how Jesus comes back the second time. He's going to come back visibly in glory with power. He's going to come in full force of his majesty as he judges the world and he brings his people home. And what 
Peter is writing about here is he's saying, listen, there's this inheritance you have, there's this eternal life, there's this citizenship, there's all these things that you're going to receive as being a child of God, and God is keeping you safe, and not only that, he is guarding you and keeping you safe for the moment when he comes back to make good on the promise that he has made. He is keeping you safe for that day when he steps back into history and he makes all things right, when he makes all things good. And we pass from this world that is falling apart and broken into one that is perfect and glorious and good. That's the hope we have as Christians. Now, the hard part for us is that, you know, we're not there yet. Notice that it says that we are kept safe for a salvation that will be revealed at the last day. See, here, Peter speaks as our salvation as something that hasn't happened yet. And you find that a lot of times in the Bible. Sometimes they talk about the idea of our salvation being a past event. It's something that already happened. Sometimes the Bible talks about our salvation as something that is happening right now. We are being saved. And then sometimes it talks about our salvation as a future event, something that hasn't occurred yet, but it will one day. And the crazy thing is, it's all three. We have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved one day. All are true, all at the same time. Because if you think about it, when was I saved? When was my salvation secured? My salvation was secured before the foundations of the earth when God decided to save me. My salvation was secured and purchased when Jesus died on the cross for my sin. My salvation was applied to me when I accepted Christ and when I realized the truth of the gospel and I was born again. All those things for me are in the past. I was saved. Now, as I live daily in this life, I am being saved. Jesus Christ is keeping me for that day of salvation. He is protecting me. He is guarding me. He is saving me from the practice of sin as I undergo sanctification. And I become more and more like Jesus. That's all happening right now. And then one day, I will be saved. And the question we kind of ask ourselves in that moment is, when it talks in here in 1 Peter about how we will be saved one day, what are we being saved from? And we sit there and we think a lot of different things like, well, we're saved from our sin, we're saved from punishment, we're saved from, we're saved from hell. And all those things are technically true, but the primary thing that we are saved from is we are saved from judgment. Because God will judge the wicked and God will judge the sinful and we are guarded and we are kept safe so that one day as we face that judgment, we will survive. We will be kept safe through it so that we enter into eternity on the other side, glorious and purified. Why? Because we are in Christ Jesus, and there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so, yeah, we are saved from the judgment and the wrath of God because of what Christ has done for us. All of these things are secure and done and finished. You know, sometimes I make promises to my kids and I can't keep them. There are other times I make promises to my kids and I don't want to keep them. <laughs> you know, we sit there and, and we get, um, for Eva's birthday recently, she got one of those little mini block sets that is of the Dinosaur National Monument. And I won't tell you where you can get it just so you don't have to suffer like I do. But it's got like 782 little pieces to it. And the whole thing's about this big when it's done. 
And so we sit there and we start putting it together and you know, we don't have time to finish. And I sit there and I say those words, Eva, I promise I'll help you finish it tomorrow. There's still a bowl of pieces sitting on our dining room table that haven't been constructed into a nice neat little model yet. Because you know, sometimes I make promises that I can't keep, or sometimes I make promises that I just don't keep, or I make promises that I forget about. That's not true with God. Thank heaven God is better than us. Thank heaven that God is more righteous, more pure, more holy, and more good, and that when God makes a promise, he has the power, the ability, and the desire to keep it. And so when God in his word says that there's an inheritance waiting for you, it's going to be there. When God says that we will not be put to shame because we have placed our faith and trust in Christ Jesus, that's true. We won't be put to shame. And it's kind of hard for us to maintain that perspective because we live in the here and now. And you know what? We don't have those things delivered to us yet. Our bodies still fall apart and break. The world we live in is crumbling and falling apart. So how are we supposed to react in hope when those bad times come. What's where it's comforting to remember who it is that Peter's writing to? Peter's writing to people that have faced persecution that you and I have never experienced. Peter is writing to a group of people who have been through times because of their faith that you and I probably do not understand. And yet look at the encouragement that he gives them. After telling them about their inheritance, about telling them about the fact that God has caused them to be born again, after telling them about the fact that they, they one day will raise just like Jesus, he says to them in verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. See, the response of the Christians facing persecution is that they are to rejoice. Why does he tell them to rejoice? He tells them to rejoice because of what is in store for them, what they have attached to their name, what they have attached to their citizenship. He tells them to rejoice because everything he just said about them is true. It's as if Peter's sitting there saying, don't you understand, you've been born again, raised from the dead. Do you understand the inheritance that you have and the new life that you get to live? Do you understand what's in store for you in eternity? Do you understand all these things that are built up for you? It doesn't matter what trials you experience in your life on this side of heaven. Because, oh my goodness, the glory that is to come makes everything here just pale in comparison. The goodness that Christ has in store for us makes all of this trivial. Makes all of this really not amount to very much. Now, does that mean we don't suffer in this life? No, of course not. We suffer all the time. Some people suffer greatly, and some people suffer more greatly than others. Some people have a harder go of it than other people. That's just a fact of living in the broken world that we live. But you know what? There's a promise made to those who suffer in these verses. Because it says in this passage that in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary. The suffering we experience is not arbitrary. The trials we experience are not arbitrary. We only suffer if necessary. But necessary to what end? 
that's given to us as we continue in the passage. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it has been though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I had a friend whose wife was suffering greatly. And he called me, and we were praying about it, and we were texting back and forth about it. And I sent him this verse, and I said, How wonderful will it be that when all is said and done, the glory and the praise that your wife gives Jesus as she sees him face to face. Because see, that's what our trials and that's what our pain and that's what our suffering results in. It results in the testing of the genuineness of our faith. You know, when people face trial and people face hardship, there's a couple of different ways that they can respond to it. You know, most people, when they sit there and they experience bad times, they kind of put on that pity party kind of face. Where they look out and they say, oh my goodness, woe is me. Look how bad my life is. Look how horrible my life is. This thing happened to me. It's not fair. I was mistreated at work and it's just not right. And someone said this about me and lied about me. And now people think all these crazy things and that's not fair and that's not right. Or I've got all these health problems and issues and it's just, oh, my life's harder and it's not fair. Woe is me, feel bad for me and feel sorry for me. Christians are to be different. Because as we face trials, as we face pain, as we face suffering, the response that we are to have is say, yeah, you know what? Life is really hard. And we have been through a lot, but you know what? God has been so good. Because look at the way he has provided for me and look at the way he has cared for me. And yeah, I know that I'm experiencing a lot of pain right now, but there have been so many times in my life when God has been so precious and so wonderful and so good and so kind that oh, I just love him so much. Or maybe even the fact of, yeah, my whole life has been a mess up to this point, but you know what? My God and my Savior has redeemed me. He has forgiven me. He has purchased me. He has placed me into his kingdom. And I know that one day all things will be made right. And he is so good to me for promising me that. I love my Savior. I love my Jesus. And when people hear those words come out of the mouths of those who are in suffering and in pain and in trial, they look at them and they say, something is different about these people. And it results and greater glorification of God and greater honor and majesty given to Jesus. And that's the point of our whole lives anyway. And what Peter is writing about here when he talks about this idea that if we suffer and if we experience pain and we experience trial, if it's necessary, then what's going to happen as we go and we see Christ one day? When Christ is revealed and Christ returns and Christ runs back? Suddenly, that thing that we have believed and placed our hope and faith in is going to be right in front of us. We're no longer going to read about him. We're going to look into his eyes. We're no longer going to just gather together and sing songs about him. We're going to be able to touch his hands. In that moment when you stand before the physical Jesus, and you wrap your arms around him and you fall to your knees and 
tears are streaming down your face, in that moment, you will look back over your life at any of your pain, any of your suffering, any of your shortcoming, and you will say every single bit of it was worth it for this moment because I'm in the arms of my Savior. I'm in the arms of my King. And there is nothing but good days ahead for me because my Savior has delivered me into this grace. My Savior has delivered me into this peace. My Savior has delivered me into this rest. And there is going to be a moment for us tens of thousands of years in the future as we are standing and working and praising and serving and fellowshipping in God's kingdom, where we will struggle to remember what it was like living in this pain and suffering because it will be so far removed from us. That's the promise and the hope that we have in the gospel. And it is good. It is good. It is good. Peter goes on in this passage and he says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. See, that describes those who belong to Jesus. We don't see Jesus now. He's not here with us. He is at the right hand of the Father. He is interceding on our behalf. He is serving as our great and holy high priest. And he is there. He is not here. We don't see him. But, oh, his children love him. We, we don't see him in this place. We don't see him in this time. We don't see him physically standing here before us. But we believe what he said, that surely as I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back. If it were not so, I would have told you. But Jesus declared that he was going to come back and that he was going to set all things right, and that he was going to take his broken and hurting children home so that they hurt no more. And in that, we rejoice. In that, no matter what pain and suffering we experience, no matter what trial, no matter what shortcoming that we have, we rejoice. Because our joy is not based on the material things of this world. They fade away and they break and they aren't worth anything. Oh, but the joy that we have in Christ Jesus is eternal. The joy that we have in Christ Jesus is good and the joy we have in Christ Jesus is absolutely wonderful. I remember when my kids were born. One of the most terrifying car rides you ever take is when they strap this little baby into your car and then they just send you on down the highway. And then suddenly every other person on the road is just a maniac. Like, oh my goodness, this car is driving within 50 feet of me. What do they want to do, kill us all? Like, what's going on? And you sit there and you are so careful and you are so cautious and your whole deal is just, I got to get this baby from the hospital back to the house. That's all I got to do. But can I tell you something? That there was so much joy in the process of bringing my kids home so that they could have a life with me, so that I could watch them, 
so I could see them. I can't tell you how many hours I remember just standing over Nate's bassinet while he slept, just thinking like, wow, <laughs> this is really cool. He doesn't fit in that bassinet anymore. <laughs> but oh, our Heavenly Father loves us so much. And from eternity past, God, our Heavenly Father, has been looking forward to the day that is yet to come when he will bring his children home. When we won't live at arm's length anymore, trying to wrestle out truth as we search the scriptures and calling out and praying and having the spirit intercede. No, the scripture says in the book of Revelation that God will make his dwelling place with us. We're going to live together. We're going to go home. And that's the hope that we have. It's the hope of Christmas. Because as Jesus Christ was born into this world, he wasn't born just to be a good person. He wasn't born just so that we would have an example of God's love. He wasn't born so that we could have a holiday and share cute Christmas cards back and forth. He was born to bring his children home. He was born to live a perfect life and with his righteousness earn our right standing with God as he died on the cross and shed his blood and broke his body. And in doing so, he provided for us absolutely everything we could ever need. He cleansed us of our sin. He gave us life everlasting. And according to John chapter 1, he gave us the right to become the children of God. And so now we sit. Our eternity is secure. And we're like orphans in an orphanage whose parents have signed the documents. We legally belong to them. And we sit in our beds with our bags packed waiting for our new mom and dad to come pick us up and take us home. But the beauty is, is that it's not something we have to wonder and fret about. It is a sure thing. Because just as Abraham so many years ago listened to the word of God and said, I believe it. And that was counted to him as righteousness. So we hear the truth of God's word and the truth of the gospel. And we say, I believe it. And it is counted to us as righteousness. Because when Christ said his death was sufficient, we say, I agree. And when Christ said he's coming back to get us, we say, yes, I agree. Thank you and praise God. And that's the hope we have in Jesus. That's the hope we have in the Bible. That's the hope we have in Christmas. So this holiday season, if you're in pain and you are suffering and you are in trial, Rejoice because better days are coming. As you gather with friends and family, do so with joy because of what has been provided for you and the future that you have to look forward to. Because the life of the Christian is one of inexpressible joy. And people should be able to read that on our faces, especially this time of year. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the joy that we have in Christ Jesus. We thank you for the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. As Lord, you have made all things new. As you have caused us to be born again. As you keep for us an inheritance and you guard us ready for the day of salvation. Lord, no matter what trial we face, we know that this world has nothing to offer us because our citizenship is of another land. 
We know that this world will fade away and crumble and fall, and yet your word will last forever. Your kingdom will last forever, and we will spend eternity with you, not as servants and slaves, but as children. Thank you for making these things possible for us. Thank you for cleansing us of our sin. And thank you, Lord, that you have promised that one day you will bring us home. In this we hope that our Savior will return in glory and he will make all things right. Thank you, Lord. We love you. We praise you. And we thank you all in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.